Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Jessica Bull about her crime novel, Miss Austin Investigates. Jessica grew up in South East London, where she still lives with her husband, two daughters, and far too many pets. She studied English literature at Bristol University and information science at City University in London. She began work as a librarian, under the false impression she could sit around and read all day before becoming a communications consultant. In this episode, we discuss why Jane Austen makes the perfect detective. How Jessica knew the time was right to query her dream agent. And what it's like writing a novel that went on to sell in 18 territories. But before we get into that, here's Jessica with an excerpt from Miss Austen Investigates. To Cassandra Austen. Steventon, Wednesday, 23rd of December, 1795. My dear Cassandra, Yes, I'm very sorry, but you really must keep Christmas with the fowls as planned. Take heart that you can do nothing more to further Georgie's cause in Steventon than you can in Kintbury. At this moment, your place is with your fiancé. Heaven only knows how long it will take young Mr. Fowl to reach St. Lucia and back. He could be away for as long as two years, and you're sure to regret passing up any opportunity to dawdle away the hours with your sweetheart once he's gone. Besides which, with all the toing and froing to Winchester to check on our dear Georgie, my father says he can't actually spare anyone to fetch you. Now, who could have killed the hapless milliner, Madame Renault? With the assistance of our visiting countess, I have expanded my list of potential suspects to include Sophie Rivers. Could the milliner have been hiding one of smug Sophie's secrets under her many hats? Sophie swears they never met, but perhaps she doth protest too much. Accuse me of basing my suspicions on no more than my distaste for our neighbour, if you must. But I think I have a good eye for a murderess. Your prayers are greatly appreciated, but our mother bids you also spy on Mrs. Fowle's kitchen maid and obtain the receipt for her fish sauce. The one in port wine with the anchovies? Apparently, it's Georgie's favourite and keeps very well in a bottle. Everybody's love, J.A. P.S. When you have finished reading, fold this letter into a boat and set it sailing down the River Kennet. 
Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Miss Austin Investigates. Hello, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to finally be here. It's finally my turn. As you know, I've been listening to you for ages and hearing about everybody else's debut novels. And I just can't believe it's such a dream to finally be in the hot seat. Uh, so lovely of you. Thank you, Jessa. I I was just saying to you before you recorded, recorded um, it feels like I've been making this podcast for five minutes. So it's lovely that uh, <laughs> you've been listening for so long. Um, so kick us off then. Start by telling us what Miss Austin Investigates is all about. Okay, so it's a Jane Austen-inspired murder mystery. So it starts with a young Jane Austen. She's only 19. She's at a ball. She's trying to have a romantic time with a certain young man called Tom Lefroy. Um, but and sadly, that's interrupted by the discovery of a milliner found bludgeoned to death. And Jane wants to solve the crime, firstly because she knew and she respected the milliner. And then her brother Georgie is arrested in connection with the crime and she has to solve it, otherwise he'll be hanged. Yeah, and... Maybe this is a stupid question, but did the novel start with Jane Austen and your love for Jane Austen? I mean, I've seen you in your amazing Regency outfits. Did it, <laughs> did it start there or did it start with um, wanting to write like a murder mystery novel? So I have been a Jane Austen fan ever since um, Colin Firth walked out of that pond in the um, 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And it just slowly kind of crept up on me over the years. I just watched every adaptation. I read every book. I visited her homes. I read every biography, everything I could get my hands on. Um, and then I'm also a huge crime fan as well. Um, so I worked in libraries for a long time. And one of the things that I, I really loved about working in the library was talking to people about what they were reading. And um, my patrons at the library really introduced me to crime fiction and got me hooked on people like P.D. James, who wrote Death Comes to Pemberley. Um, so it started with Jane Austen and what I really wanted to do was to make a tribute to her life. So I think we sometimes get her confused with her characters and think that life was easy for her and that writing came easy and that publication and success came easy when it really didn't at all and I wanted to tell the story of this amazing resilient and determined woman who overcame all these obstacles but I wanted to do it in a fun and exciting way um, and I was already kind of playing with the idea of writing a historical mystery and what I realised I needed to do was to really lean into that and make Jane Austen my star and give her a murder to solve um, and yeah that's how it happened. I wondered like if you're choosing a, a real life person and obviously um Jane Austen's long gone but did you almost feel like a bit naughty for kind of almost absolutely. taking her life absolutely I felt very naughty I felt very naughty the, the realization because I've I've watched like all the big films portraying mm. her um and I never really felt that they captured the essence of who I thought she was like I really enjoyed them but I don't think they got over how funny and how joyful um she was so there came this realization where I thought well you're a writer Jessica why why don't you try writing about her and at first I was terrified I was too scared to do it because it was such a big thing to do and so naughty to do that to such a respected icon of English literature 
Um, so I kind of crept my way in. So as I mentioned, I was already writing mystery and the novel I wrote before this, which is my novel in the drawer, um, was kind of based on Jane Austen, but I didn't call her Jane Austen. So she was born in the same, my protagonist was born in the same year. She had a sister she was really close to. And I knew it was working because I'd share it with my writing group and they'd say things to me like, she's very Lizzie Bennet, isn't she? And so I knew there was something there, but yeah, it took me a while to develop the confidence to mm-hmm. really, really grab hold of it and lean into it and just celebrate it. Mm. Almost felt like you, you know, you needed permission to to use her name, and uh, it is. I think it's great. I mean, I I will confess now that I'm not a I'm not particularly knowledgeable in Austen at all, and I've only read two of her novels. Um, but but I've been told there are lots of kind of easter eggs for the Jane Austen fans embedded into the novel how fun was that for you to do it was incredibly fun it was incredibly fun so tell me which ones you've read uh Pride and Prejudice of course um and I have to say that I whereas most people grew up loving Pride and Prejudice I didn't hadn't seen the adaptation or read the book till much later in my life I was brought up on Sense and Sensibility um and I adored the Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet film and I would always watch that when I was off sick from school get the VHS out watch that have a cry you know enjoy the the you know the period costume and all that so that was my uh, that was my kind of film and then I remember when I was 18 we were told in the summer holidays our English teacher said you have to read a classic so I was like right I'm going to read Pride and Prejudice I'm sorry you're going to read Sense and Sensibility because I know it so well and I found it really hard, but that's an 18 year old, you know, so, yeah. um, but I don't know the books like so, so well. So I, I don't think that's know why that the adaptations to... are important because they, yeah. they bring us to it, don't they? They're, they're really, really important. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was enormous fun and it's so uh, funny to talk to people now about the book and, and what Easter eggs they particularly enjoyed and what they saw in it, because I've realised that I've done things that I didn't really realise that I was doing at the time because Austin had just worked her way inside my imagination and took over that when I want to explore a scene, I'll inadvertently kind of draw on that inspiration. So lots of people say that in this book, they notice parts of Jane um, as Lizzie Bennet or Jane as um, Emma particularly when she's, you know, does something a bit mortifying. But what I was really, really drawing on for this first book was Northanger Abbey. So Northanger Abbey was the first Austen I read, and it's got the most um, in common with a murder mystery in some senses. And all Jane Austen's novels have a lot in common with murder mysteries because they're all essentially novels where the heroine has to find out the true character Mm -hmm. of those around her. And she um, kind of does that by interrogating the stories that she's told and testing what she knows about the hero. So... um, this is very much my tribute to Northanger Abbey, which, of course, Catherine Morland gets so carried away with trying to find out the, the history of her family, of, of the hero's family, that she accuses his, his dad, General Tilney, of murdering his wife and makes a real blunder there. So and it was important for me to draw on that inspiration because Northanger Abbey is... Jane Austen's tribute to the Gothic and to women writers of her time. And what I was trying to do was to build that same kind of tribute that was inspired by Austen, but wasn't exactly the same, but still contained my own voice and my own style Mm. of writing. 
yeah that was one thing I wanted to ask you about actually because your your book does have that kind of um observational comedy well not comedy but wit um and uh, kind of you know you you write in the third person that it's kind of like all-seeing narrator so I was I was thinking as I was reading it like this does fit nicely alongside Austin's canon and was that your intention to write it that way yeah yeah so it's yeah I didn't want to fall into the trap of writing a pastiche mm. um and it's really overwhelming kind of writing trying to write in kind of Austin's tone because obviously you're inviting comparison to the greatest novelist who ever lived and you know it's, it's never gonna never gonna go well <laughs> she's always gonna win there's only one Jane Austen and she's absolutely brilliant she's a genius and yeah you know it's not it's not um it's not great to be compared to her but she was she's influenced my writing and my imagination so much that rather than kind of fight against that and try and write something very different or try and be original for the sake of being original which I think we all feel when we're younger I think as I've got older I've kind of enjoyed turning that on its head and learning what I can from her and really leaning into that style and that inspiration um there's there's a novel called the confessions of franny langton by sarah collins and in that there's a really lovely quote when she says that men write to distinguish themselves from the literary canon whereas women write to join in and i think austin did that and that is exactly what i was trying to do here so i did study her tone um and particularly when I was writing the letters from Jane to her sister Cassandra and it's lovely that you mentioned the comedy because the other thing that I really really enjoy about an Austen novel is the comedy is all the laughs is all the satire and I did try and work out how she constructed a joke and what I could learn from that and I always said that what I really wanted this novel to be was kind of one third biographical fiction one third literary criticism and a hundred percent murder mystery <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, talking of the kind of biographical element of it, I know you've done an insane amount of research, but obviously just for your own enjoyment as well. How did you then decide kind of the gaps in Jane's life and what you could, I guess, what you could use in this and what you were happy to just make up yourself? How did you kind of decide those those areas to play with? It's such a paradox because we feel like we know a lot about Austen and who she was, but at the same time, we really don't. So unlike lots of other writers, she she never kept a journal. She never left us a journal anyway. And then um, her sister Cassandra burnt the vast majority of her letters deliberately to kind of protect her. And the story that we have about Austen is very much filtered through her family, her Victorian relatives, and they were, were trying to protect her reputation after you know, the reputations of other women writers like Mary Wollstonecraft had been trashed. So we do know a lot about her, but at the same time, we don't really know much about her at all. Um, and for me, this was a project was all about getting as close to her as possible. So I challenged myself to keep the story as close to the truth as possible and to make it as authentic as possible. So even down to the motivation for 
Jane getting involved in the crime and the crime itself. So one of the things that we don't know much about is her brother, George, who had epilepsy and learning difficulties. And I always felt he'd been really unfairly erased from the narrative of her life when you know, the records show that the family cared for him. And he, he was very much part of the Austin set until the day he died. He was looked after and cared for by his relatives um, in terms of you know, how they arranged for him to be taken care of. And then the other thing that we do know about, which the family probably didn't want us to know about, is the story of her aunt, so Mrs. Lee Perot, who in 1799 was arrested for shoplifting a card of lace in Bath. Um, and the lace was worth about 60 shillings, and this was a, um, a capital crime in Georgian England. So she stood trial. And if she'd have been found guilty, she would have been, um, it was a capital crime. So, but given the low value of the lace she probably would have been transported to australia for 14 years instead wow. yeah and it was so serious that her husband was like preparing to make this move to australia um but she was acquitted but it was a big kind of you know really upset the family at the time and i was thinking about her and i was reading one of the few letters where georgie's parents mention him and his dad, Mr. Rustin, is reflecting on his condition and he says, we have this consolation. He cannot be a bad or wicked child. And it just spoke to me like this is someone they loved and they wanted to protect and they knew that was vulnerable. And so with that terrible imagination of a novelist, I thought, oh, what if I put Georgie in the position that she was in? Would that be enough? Would that be authentic enough to spare my Jane into solving her first mystery? Um, and it absolutely is. What I love is that you use that tiny little nugget that you found in your research and it spun this whole narrative for you. I mean, imagine if you hadn't come across that line and you hadn't oh. path. It's 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 mad when you know one line in a in a bit of research can really take you on the whole journey of your novel. And I, I find that amazing when you talk about kind of inspiration. Um there are obviously so many and you must have loved kind of constructing this novel because there's so many aspects of the Regency era um, and that uh, that we see in Austen's novels, but that you've brought in. So you have things like the balls and the reputation of the family and uh, marriage and all the matches and things. And how did you choose which parts of the era would fit with building a crime? Because essentially you are, you are making sure that this is a murder mystery and that's the heart of the story, but you've got to make the, the era authentic. I mean, I know you're, you know, as I've as I've seen your amazing outfits, if anyone hasn't seen you dressed up, I'm going to direct them to your social media pages so they can see you in your outfits. But how did you kind of construct this historical era then and decide what was going to what was going to fit into your story and what was going to be left behind? Well, it's really funny because what I was really concerned about are what are the motivations um, for the crime and how can I give everybody, all this cast of characters, the motivations that might lead to a crime? Um, and as you really think about it, you realise that those motivations are the same drivers for the things that are driving lots of the characters in Austen's novels. So it's, you know, it's money, it's reputation, it's sex. Um, and her novels do verge on the darker side. So she was very, very interested in law and she was very interested in the way that 
the law systematically disadvantages women. So if you think about Pride and Prejudice, the whole plot of that drives on the fact that women are barred from inheriting longborn. Um, and then there's this tension between which what is morally acceptable and what is legal. So the big crime that we would consider a crime today in Pride and Prejudice is Wickham grooming and abducting 15-year-old Lydia is not a crime in Georgian England and in fact it's Lydia who'll be punished um, if he doesn't marry her so there was a real harmony there I think and then the the other thing um, that I was really trying to do was to make sure that the things that Jane's characters that, that Austin's characters do um, and that she did in real life are essential to solving the crime and to do that in a way that the small details of women's lives matter just like she did in her novels so I have her doing things like I think thought about what would she know about what does she do so she calls on her neighbours um, and she interviews them and she goes shopping and she knows about cloth and she knows where various materials come from and how they're made um, and she instructs her servants and then I just got so carried away with that that there is a ball scene in the middle of the novel where Jane goes to a ball at the assembly rooms and the only way that she can solve the crime is by dancing with as many gentlemen as possible and obviously that's me just getting really really carried away with that whole concept of, of how can Jane be, be a detective. I love that. I love that so much. I mean, who doesn't want a, a dancing detective? I mean, it just is it's brilliant. Um, I always and I I always ask this, particularly of people who write crime or mystery novels, and so many people surprise me with their answer. That I always imagine if you're a crime writer or a murder mystery writer, you have you know your post-it notes, your really uh, detailed plans, and your um, you know whiteboard in your in your office or things with scribbled notes on and then a lot of people tell me that they're not a planner um but are you a big planner Jess are I'm you... a planner I'm a big planner and I'm evangelical about planning because <laughs> it was only when I started planning that my writing really broke through and began to take off um so yeah and I think it's really important with mystery because every mystery is a story where the protagonist is uncovering another story so it's really complicated and I really want my readers to like trust me to to lead them through that so yeah I, I think that you know planning pays off definitely. What's your kind of uh, your general kind of writing process like are you um are you a kind of like scrappy writer in terms of finding little bits of time in the day that you sit and write or do you kind of carve out blocks of time are you a early morning writer, late night writer, what's your kind of general routine look like? So my perfect writing day, and obviously it's not often that we have these like perfect writing days, but the okay. perfect writing day is um, I'll drop my kids off at school at about eight and I'll come back and that first few hours are absolutely precious and in terms of like my concentration and my creativity and I'll write and write and write until about um, lunchtime and then I'll take my dog for a walk um, listening to music normally I always have a playlist that like has the mood for each um, project that I'm working on and then I'll come back and do another kind of like quick burst I think 90 minutes is the longest that anybody should mm -hmm. ever be asked to concentrate for so I try and do two bursts of 90 minutes um, and then after that my kids come home and everything goes to pop <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we talked about a little bit about your um, planning and research, but um, 
when you came, obviously you've done a lot of reading just out of your own interest, but when it came to writing a novel, did you keep having to dip back into it or go and find things out? Or were you the kind of person that leaves yourself notes in your manuscript like XXX must find out this later? Um, or were you always dipping back into it? Yeah, so it was helpful that I'd done so much reading and that the story was informed by the research rather than having to do the research to back up the story. Um, and the other thing is I quite like doing lots of drafts. So I'll do a first really scrappy draft and I'll try and write that quite quickly and probably do most of the research at that stage so that uh, if I know that I've got a scene that you know deals with the legal system at the time so I'll do that research then um, or if I'm you know thinking about what Jane might be wearing or what she, she might be eating I'll look up that research then um, and not worry too much about the writing at a line level at that stage and they'll go over it and 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 you know end up with like you know version like 54 or whatever <laughs> saved <laughs> saved somewhere um so that by that time hopefully it's kind of like smoothed out and the research is not so obvious I'm not trying to like shoehorn things in and what was the most challenging part of writing this book do you think if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I really love the blank page and the creativity at the beginning. And I love the research. Like, you know, I feel like some of us historical novelists write novels in order to justify the research because we just love doing the research um so I really love that part of it and I love the process um, and getting lost in it and the days where you just you know you can't get your head out of the manuscript you're just so there I find it really difficult as it gets close to the end and I'm on like my third round of proofs or whatever and I'm just saying to the proofreader oh can we just like move this he says she says to there and then it comes back again and I'll have changed my mind and I'll be like oh sorry I know I said that but can you just move it there so I hate it when I have to draw a line onto it and I have to finish it and everything's final and set in stone that makes me really anxious and I never know when the perfect point to let go is. Mm -hmm. It's hard for anyone isn't it because I think even if you'd book, published a book 10 years ago and you'd look at it now and think, oh, I wouldn't have written that or I would have changed this or would have deleted that sentence. And I, I almost think it's like they say uh, with, with paintings, you know, they're never, they're never finished, they're abandoned or whatever the phrase is. And I always think it's, yeah. the same. I think it's exactly the same. Like we could, we could, you know, rearrange all words and swap things around and edit them forever and they still wouldn't be finished in our mind because what you have in your head is your perfect novel cannot possibly be on the page but you have to try and get it as close as possible and it's really hard um, it is really hard and it's good in a way because I think that means you're still learning you've still got that eye to improve it mm -hmm. and I think you know if there ever comes a day where I read something I've written and think that's it I've nailed it I couldn't write anything better then I'd be really scared because where do you go from there <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about your story of how you came to get an agent um I know you said you've been writing your whole life but um what was the point where it kind of got really serious for you um so I I had like a yeah so I had I had like kind of full start about kind of 12 years ago where I wrote my first novel and queried it and got some great feedback but didn't really realize how lucky I was to have that great feedback because it wasn't like we're going to publish this your novel immediately it's perfect it was like go away rewrite this and then submit it again to agents um so I got very dispirited after that and I had young children as well so it's really difficult to write when you've got young children and so I okay, put that on the shelf for a little while and I just concentrated on on my uh my full-time job and reading and just you know enjoying books um and then I sat down and started writing again in about 2020 when you know the world kind of really it got quite hard for a lot of people including my family I think writing again was my way of um uh, staying sane really through that throughout that time and I wrote three novels this was the third novel during that time um and started querying it in at the end of 2021 and I think it's important to tell this because like for some for some of us for most of us it takes, you know, putting, it takes time to learn the craft and to put yourself out there and to learn how the whole querying process works. So it was the third novel that I'd ever queried. Um, and I knew something was different straight away because I started getting full requests straight away. And then because I'd kind of 
done so much kind of research around the process I knew that that was the best time for me to submit to my dream agent Hmm. um and so I did that and I sent it to Juliet Mushins and by some miracle she came back within 24 hours and requested the full and then um just over a week later she offered to represent me so it's one of those stories where you know it took me a lifetime to achieve that overnight success and then it was wonderful because she helped me edit it I knew that there were things that I needed to improve about the novel Um, and we did three rounds of edits together and then when it went on submission I was really fortunate to get a preempt request straight away but I didn't take that because I was just like in a in a rabbit in headlights really and didn't know what to do um and I met um several publishers who were interested and it ended up going to auction and that was really wonderful process for me because it meant I got to meet each of the editors who might take it on and understand how they all might have a different vision for the book so some were like can you make it scarier some were like can you make it funnier and I went with Penguin Michael Joseph because my editor there was like let's really get the sensitivity issues in the novel right because it is a quite diverse novel and that was really important to me in writing it I wanted to show how much more diverse Jane Austen's life was um, than we might think it was when we look at those you know wonderful adaptations um, so yeah it was wonderful to get to meet everyone and get a real sense of, of control over the whole process and I definitely re- made the right choice it's been wonderful working mm. with them and then after that I was really fortunate because the international deal started coming in and I think I'm up to 18 territories at the moment wow wow I know <laughs> that's so incredible I think it's that thing isn't it like obviously kind of that cozy crime mystery is so popular but also Jane Austen is like so quintessentially English that it's like catnip for international countries they're like oh you know this this historical figure that's everyone knows and it's really popular so I can see why that would be I I find that the the conversations you had with different editors so interesting because you tend to think that I mean obviously you in your head know what you want the book to be but it's so fascinating that different editors can have different visions of where they want the book to go or how they're going to market it or pitch it and I and I find that whole thing so interesting and and it's that careful choice of picking the person that's kind of in line with what you want the book to be mm, absolutely mm. I'm just interested to ask the the books that you queried queried with before this one were they similar in terms of were they historical were they crime like were they... no I think that was part of the problem it took me a long time to find my genre and to get the confidence so that first one that I queried back in I think it was like 2010 was a contemporary romance so you can see that the Jane Austen kind of the obvious thing to do when you're a Jane Austen fan is to write a contemporary romance um and the feedback that I I got for that was um like the description's really lovely but nothing happens it's a bit boring (laughs) you make something happen so okay uh and then the second book I queried in like 2020 it was it was absolutely um unpublishable probably it was no genre it was kind of like a feminist revenge thriller set in this kind of medieval fantasy world really because I wanted to write historical fiction but I couldn't be bothered to do any research I didn't know how to go about doing the research and I was like how could I was how can I make a plot that was a lesson in building a plot Mm -hmm. um and then 
yeah, the third novel I wrote was a, my first attempt at historical. And it's one of those funny things where you don't realise how much you don't know about something until you've done it. And then you realise how far away you are away mm. from it. Um, and I kind of got to the point where I would have queried that. And then Miss Austin Investigates was my side project. Um, and again, that was trying to do too much. It was it was um, a romance and it was a mystery and it was like dual timeline and it was like multi PV and it was just like, okay, how do I, how do I just take this right back and write something like really contained and do that really, really well. Absolutely. So as we're speaking, your book is days away from being published. Um, I wondered how you're feeling, how you've coped with all the publishing ups and downs and, and what you think, what you wish you'd known way back when when you signed your contract about how to how to cope with all the kind of emotional highs and lows or even the practical things like um you know the the lingo that um publishers use that you think I've got no idea what this means um so how has it been for you so I think I've had a really fortunate experience definitely um and I don't feel wise enough to pass on any like nuggets of wisdom yet but I think one thing that has really helped is letting myself kind of really embrace the whole publishing world so you know, doing things like listening to your podcast like all through this journey has been really helpful for understanding how different people's experiences play out um, and then connecting with other writers over social media and going to writing festivals has been really important to me because it means that I've managed to build this support network around me of other authors and other debut authors and kind of keeps me grounded um, and it means that when I'm having like a crisis of should I be doing this should I be doing more what should be happening with the book at this point I can ask those people and they're all wonderfully like supportive and generous with their time and, and advice and yeah that's definitely helped keep me sane throughout the whole process so that's the one thing that I would say is put yourself out there and you know, learn as much as you can hear as many different experiences as you can and try and get a support network around you yeah absolutely it makes such a huge difference I think because it's a it's a weird industry in some ways and friends that are outside of it it's hard to explain kind of the minutiae. Oh, it's impossible to explain yeah. it's impossible to explain anybody who to explain to anybody who's not a writer mm. how anxious and nervous I'm feeling this week because everyone's like you should be drinking champagne for breakfast you've done it it's amazing it's about to happen but obviously I'm like oh you feel like this sense of like about to be kind of exposed in a way and it's yeah it's really nerve-wracking and it's any your writer friends that can say look yeah it's okay don't worry just take some quiet time you know don't worry yeah I think it's just about making some time for yourself away from the book world for a bit and and then go back to it when you're feeling like you've uh re-energized and you're ready to to read the comments or well not the reviews we we do not encourage reading reviews on this podcast uh, <laughs> um, I wish I wish I was the kind of person that could not read reviews oh no really you've you fallen down the rabbit hole of reading reviews yeah yeah I do I do and it's not it's you know it's not really helpful I mean it's lovely when they're when they're nice but you know the human brain is like programmed to look at threats so obviously it's only the bad ones that we that we dwell on and that it's only the bad ones you remember that's that's the thing so that's why you shouldn't read them and you should get a a trusted friend to read the good ones to you 
um, or send them to you and just ignore. I think, I don't know, maybe people will have different experiences, but my experience was at the beginning, I was reading every review because yeah. it was a novelty and I was curious to what people were saying. And then it got to a point where I read a, a not so great review and it was very, at, it kind of picked apart my insecurities. And then I oh. thought, okay, I don't need to read anymore. And from that moment, I've never read a single review since. I really want to get to that point. I want to be you when I grow up. I think, yeah, I think in a couple of months you will you will reach that point because people will probably say the same lovely things about your book, and it will get to the point where you think, I I know that now. Like I know how people are feeling. I know that people are loving this or they're really enjoying this, and you won't need to read them anymore, and you'll you'll kind of move past it. Um, I think. I think it's I think that's how it goes for most people, but um you'll have to stop yourself before you read any bad ones. Yes. <laughs> so finally, can you tell us what you're writing next? I have heard a little tease because uh in the copy that I read there was a little tease at the back of the book that there is a sequel in the works. So Jess, please tell us. Absolutely more. there's a sequel in the works. So this series is all about um, looking at the the major events and the major relationships that sh- shaped Jane Austen's life, um, and pairing that with a murder mystery, um, and it's also about looking at her books and creating um, a set of shadow books that don't not necessarily retellings, but they do look at the same themes. And you might be excited to know that the next one is very much inspired by Sense and Sensibility. Oh, <laughs> so. Um, Jane uh, has to travel to Kent to help look after her wealthy brother Neddy's children um, for the summer and when she gets there she realises that her time would be better spent investigating the mysterious young woman who is claiming to be a shipwrecked princess and seeking refuge with his adoptive mother Mrs Knight and thereby threatening the much anticipated inheritance that all of the Austins have come to rely on. Brilliant. Oh, that's exciting. I'm very intrigued by the sense of sensibility link. Um, you, you're talking about, um, you know, Darcy riding out of the, or coming out of the lake. My memory of sense of sensibility is Willoughby, although boo hiss, uh, <laughs> walking in the rain, carrying Marianne with her broken or sprained ankle. And you're just like, ah, oh, until you realise that he's a wrong one. And I think that's what, when you talk about how, what a good fit Jane Austen is with kind of crime, I think she does the twist very well, you know, the kind of... She does. She pulls the rug out under you and the, the character that you're a bit suspicious of and then they have this kind of secret history about them and I think that works really well. So very excited to hear about um, the sequel and wish you good luck with uh, the publication of both, Jess. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. That was Jessica Bull talking about her crime novel, Miss Austen Investigates, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>